Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you wanna get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Pax Britannica. I'm your host, Samuel Hume. Except today, this isn't Pax Britannica, and I'm not your host. Instead, I have the pleasure of sharing two episodes from Lindsey Graham's new show, History Daily. Lindsey is the voice and mind behind American History Tellers, American Scandal, and many other brilliant history podcasts, and History Daily is his latest tour de force. History Daily is exactly that. Every day, Lindsey covers an event which happened on that day decades or centuries ago, all with great sound design, original music, and the incredible narrative style of Lindsey Graham. Just for an example of how varied this show can get, last week, as of recording this, Lindsay covered the conviction of Lee Harvey Oswald, the assassination of Julius Caesar, the shooting of a Swedish king at a masquerade, the foundation of the Kingdom of Italy, and the first spacewalk. Today, I've chosen two episodes from History Daily to show off. The first is the execution of Mary, Queen of Scots, in 1587. The second, the overthrow of James II in 1688 a great-grandmother and great-grandson double feature. When you're finished, make sure to go and subscribe to History Daily. There's a link in the episode description, or you can simply search History Daily in all good podcast apps. It's the middle of the night in Edinburgh, Scotland, on February 10th, 1567. A servant is asleep in his narrow bed but is startled awake when the silent darkness is shattered by an explosion. From the street outside, dogs bark wildly, and his neighbors shout in alarm. He slips from his bed and quickly pulls on his clothes. His heart thumping, the servant hurries down the back stairs of the house and goes out into the night to find out what's happened. Stepping outside, he can smell dust and sulfur in the air. He sees an older man with a lantern rushing through the darkness in the direction of the blast. The servant follows him through the maze of streets until they arrive at what was a building called the Kirko Field House. But now there's nothing left of it but a burning pile of rubble. Outside, a crowd of concerned neighbors have gathered to find out what's happened. One of the men in the crowd turns to the servant and says, Do you know who was staying in there? The servant shakes his head no. Lord Darnley, the man replies, the Queen's husband. Mary, Queen of Scots, has long struggled to unite Scotland behind her rule. A Catholic, she presides over a predominantly Protestant nation. Her marriage to the unpopular young Englishman, Lord Darnley, hasn't helped. Many Scots despise Darnley, who they see as a vain, promiscuous, power-hungry drunk. Eight months ago, Queen Mary gave birth to their son, James. But Darnley didn't even show up to his baptism. As a result of his constant philandering, 
Darnley eventually contracted syphilis. As punishment, Queen Mary sent him away to stay at the Kirko Fieldhouse. The young servant helps the crowds search through the rubble, looking for any survivors. They dig all night, but it's not until the first light of dawn creeps across the sky that they find something in the garden of the ruined building. The young servant pushes through the crowd for a better look. Stretched out under a pear tree is the naked body of the queen's young husband. But it's obvious even to the servant that the nobleman wasn't killed in the explosion or crushed by falling debris. He's been strangled. Eventually, it is revealed that sometime after Queen Mary sent Darnley away, someone started packing the cellars of Kirko Fieldhouse with large quantities of gunpowder. Many will speculate that Darnley uncovered a plot against him and attempted to flee, but the assassin stopped him in the garden and strangled him before he could escape. Others suggest that Queen Mary herself orchestrated the plot. Though the truth will never be known, what is certain is that the death of her unpopular husband will not make Queen Mary's rule over Scotland any less turbulent. Her struggle to keep a grip on power will eventually lead her to England, where she will meet the executioner's blade on February 8th, 1587. From Noiser and Airship, I'm Lindsey Graham, and this is History Daily. History is made every day. On this podcast, every day, we tell the true stories of the people and events that shaped our world. Today is February 8th, the execution of Mary, Queen of Scots. It's May 13th, 1568, at the village of Langside, just south of Glasgow in Scotland, 19 years before Mary, Queen of Scots, is executed. Mary, the 26-year-old queen, watches from a safe distance as her 6,000-man army marches forward to engage enemy rebels who have challenged her right to rule. Mary is feeling confident. Her commanders have assured her that her forces far outnumber the enemy. And once these rebels have been crushed, Mary can reassert her authority in Scotland and rule unopposed. Like many nations in 16th century Europe, Scotland is divided by religion. Most of the population is Protestant, but there is a strong Catholic community as well, including Queen Mary herself. These religious tensions have weakened Mary's hold on the Scottish throne. A year ago, in 1567, a powerful group of Protestant noblemen rebelled against Mary. They took the queen prisoner and forced her to abdicate the throne to her infant son, James. But there were many Scots still loyal to their Catholic queen. Two of them helped Mary break free from the rebel castle where she was being held prisoner. And after making her escape, Mary raised an army. Her plan was to march her soldiers to the west coast of Scotland, where she would wait for reinforcements and gather enough support to force the rebels to surrender and rescue her infant son, James. But on the way to her destination, Mary's enemies ambushed her and forced her soldiers into a fight. Now, as Mary watches the battle unfold, her confidence collapses. Her army is bigger, but the rebel commanders are clearly more experienced. They quickly outmaneuver and overpower Mary's soldiers. After only 45 minutes, the Battle of Langside, as it will come to be known, is over. Mary's army has been routed, and the defeated queen must run for her life. Days later, on May 16, 1568, 
Mary stands on the shores of the southwest coast of Scotland. As she peers out across the expanse of water before her, she spies her destination in the distance, a dark smudge of land on her horizon. At this time, Scotland and England are entirely separate nations. England is ruled by a Protestant queen, Elizabeth I. Mary, a Catholic, has never met Elizabeth. But in spite of their religious differences, there is reason Mary believes Elizabeth will help her. The two women are cousins. A few days ago, Mary had thousands of soldiers at her command. Now she has fewer than 20. She cannot defeat the rebels and rescue her infant son on her own. She will need her cousin's help. And Mary knows her pursuers aren't far behind. So she hurries to a fishing boat that's waiting just offshore. She feels the cold water on her feet as she splashes through the shallows. When she reaches the boat, she's helped on board by a group of sailors awaiting her arrival. Within minutes, the boatmen hoist the sails and push out to sea. Four hours later, Mary will land on the shores of England, hoping to throw herself on the mercy of her cousin. But Elizabeth will not be merciful, nor will she help Mary reclaim power. Instead, Elizabeth will make her cousin a prisoner once again and ensure that Mary never sees her homeland or her son again. It's January 1585, about 17 years after Mary fled Scotland. In northern England, a long train of carts bumps along a country road. The 30 wagons are laden with tapestries and carpets, clothes and jewels. Mary, the former Queen of Scots, does not travel light. She rides on horseback at the head of a procession, wrapped in furs to ward off the biting January wind. She is surrounded by guards, but they're not here to protect the former Queen. Their job is to stop her from escaping. Mary fled Scotland hoping that her cousin, the Queen of England, Elizabeth I, would help her retake the Scottish crown. Instead, Mary was taken prisoner and locked away. She's been moved around from castle to castle ever since. Mary is a problem the English don't know how to solve. As a fellow monarch, Elizabeth was horrified that rebels forced Mary from her throne. But Elizabeth is a Protestant. She has no desire to meddle in Scotland on behalf of a Catholic monarch, cousin or not. And there's another complication. Elizabeth is childless. Mary is her closest living relative, and that makes Mary potentially the heir to the English throne. Like Scotland, the English population is divided between Protestants and Catholics. After decades of tension and violence between the religious factions, Elizabeth has established a less extreme version of Protestantism that tolerates Catholics, provided they are loyal to the Queen. Her goal is peace in England, and she has it for the moment. But there are plenty of disgruntled English Catholics who would love to see Elizabeth killed and her Catholic cousin Mary placed on the throne of England instead. Over the years, several treacherous conspiracies have been thwarted by Elizabeth's spies. After each unsuccessful attempt, Elizabeth responded by tightening her grip on the former Scottish Queen. Today, Mary is moved yet again, this time to the grim confines of the Tutbury Castle in central England. Soon, the procession of carts rattles over the drawbridge and into the castle yard. There, Mary looks up at her new home, a dreary stone tower looming in the gray sky. Mary is now in her forties, but she looks much older. The many years of imprisonment have taken a toll on her health. But she's not yet given up hope. She prays that one of the plots against Elizabeth will succeed, so she can trade the dark chambers of these remote castles for a royal palace 
and an English crown. And soon, Mary's prayers appear to come true. After a year in the tower at Tutbury, Mary is moved again, this time to Chartley Manor, a moated mansion in Stratfordshire. Not long after her arrival, Mary begins to receive secret correspondences. The letters are smuggled to Mary by a local brewer who frequently delivers barrels of beer to the manor. The brewer is connected to a group of Englishmen who want to help Mary. One of these men, Anthony Babington, claims he represents a group of Catholics who plan to kill Elizabeth and install Mary as the new Queen of England. But before he proceeds, he wants Mary's blessing. Eventually, Mary writes a response and sends it to Babington through the local brewer. In Mary's reply, she encourages Babington to go forward with his plan. But Mary doesn't realize she's being deceived. The local brewer isn't trying to help Mary. He's doing the bidding of Queen Elizabeth's spymaster, Francis Walsingham. With the help of his network of spies, Walsingham managed to uncover Babington's plot to kill Elizabeth and install Mary. But upon learning of the scheme, he didn't have Babington arrested. Instead, he facilitated the conspiracy. Walsingham's spies arranged for the local brewer to smuggle Babington's letters to Mary in Chartley Manor. Walsingham is a devout Protestant. He's been looking for a way to eliminate the threat of the Catholic Queen for some time. And when he reads Mary's eager reply to Babington, Walsingham knows that he has what he needs to put Mary on trial for treason, a crime that carries with it a penalty of death. It's the morning of February 8, 1587, at Fotheringay Castle in England. Mary enters the crowded hall. As she looks up at the scaffold where she will soon meet her end, her stomach churns with fear. But the former Scottish queen holds her head high and forces herself to remain composed. This is the same room where Mary was put on trial. During those proceedings, she tried to protest her innocence. She claimed that as a sovereign of a foreign country, she was not an English subject, and therefore couldn't be guilty of treason. But her spirited defense failed. On October 25, 1586, Mary was convicted and sentenced to death. But for months, Mary's cousin Elizabeth I refused to sign the death warrant. She could not bring herself to condemn her own cousin. Additionally, Elizabeth feared retribution from Catholic countries in Europe, like Spain and France. But her advisors, including Francis Walsingham, encouraged her relentlessly to rid the country of Mary the Troublesome Scot. Eventually, the Queen caved. Today, as Mary stands on the scaffold, she kisses her sobbing ladies-in-waiting one last time and asks that they pray for her soul. As she falls to her knees, the 44-year-old whispers a prayer in Latin. Then she lays her chin on cold, dull wood and waits for the executioner's axe to fall. After Mary's execution, Queen Elizabeth sends a letter to Mary's son James, the King of Scotland. Elizabeth claims she never intended for his mother to die and that her subordinates carried out the execution without her knowledge. But her protestations of innocence are belied by the fact that Elizabeth's signature is on Mary's death warrant. Still, James accepts Elizabeth's version of events and does not seek revenge for his mother's death. But someone else does. Philip II, the Catholic King of Spain. In King Philip's mind and in the eyes of many European Catholics, Mary is a martyr who was wrongfully put to death by a Protestant heretic. Not long after her death, Philip begins plotting a way to remove Elizabeth from power and restore Roman Catholicism to England. 
In the months that follow, the already simmering tension between the two countries erupts into an all-out war on the high seas. In 1588, King Philip sends his Spanish Armada, a fleet of 130 ships, to invade England. But Philip's so-called invincible Armada is no match for England's navy. Soon, the Armada sails back to Spain in defeat, at least one-third of its ships lost. England's triumph over Spain helps establish England as a major European naval power, but Elizabeth will not live to enjoy the full fruits of that achievement. Sixteen years after Mary's execution, Queen Elizabeth I dies childless. As a result, she is succeeded by her closest living relative, Mary's son, James, the King of Scotland. James's ascension to the English throne makes him king of both Scotland and England. This so-called Union of the Crowns is a prelude to an official unification that will happen a century later, when England and Scotland unite as one kingdom by the name of Great Britain, an outcome that was set in motion when Mary, Queen of Scots, was executed on February 8, 1587. Next on History Daily, February 9, 1886, after anti-Chinese violence descends into riots, President Grover Cleveland declares a state of emergency in Seattle. From Noiser and Airship, this is History Daily, hosted, edited, and executive produced by me, Lindsey Graham. Audio editing by Molly Bach. Music and sound design by Lindsey Graham. This episode is written and researched by Vanessa DeHaan and William Simpson. Executive producers are Stephen Walters for Airship and Pascal Hughes for Noiser. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Was the Sphinx 10,000 years old? Were there serial killers in ancient Greece and Rome? What were the lives of transgender, intersex, and non-binary people like in the ancient world? We're Jen. And Jenny. From Ancient History Fangirl. We tell you true stories and tall tales of the ancient world. Sometimes we do it tipsy. Sometimes we have amazing guests on our show. Historians like Barry Strauss, podcasters like Liv Albert, Mike Duncan, and authors like Joanne Harris and Ben Aronovich. We take you to the top of Hadrian's Wall to watch the Roman Empire fall at the end of the world. We walk the catacombs beneath the Temple of the Feathered Serpent under Teotihuacan. We walk the sacred spirals of the Nazca Lines in search of ancient secrets. And we explore mythology from ancient cultures around the world. Come find us at ancienthistoryfangirl.com or wherever you get your podcasts. It's January 30th, 1649. Crowds fill the streets of central London. A group of teenage boys elbow their way through the packed bodies, searching for a better view. Leading them is a 15-year-old named Samuel Pepys. Samuel will later write one of the most famous diaries in history, chronicling his life and times in astonishing detail. But today, he's just a schoolboy who has sneaked away to witness an execution. The boys find a break in the crowd and huddle together to see. 
On a street outside the Palace of Whitehall, a platform has been erected. It's draped in black cloth and ringed with soldiers, more than young Samuel can count. Vendors work the crowds, selling hot pies that steam in the cold January air. Many here have seen criminals and traitors die before. It's always been a popular day out for Londoners, but today will be an execution like none other. Charles I, King of England, Scotland, and Ireland, has been found guilty of trying to seize unlimited and tyrannical power to rule according to his will and to overthrow the rights and liberties of the people. His death sentence comes after seven years of civil war. At the heart of the conflict was the question of how the country was governed, whether ultimate political power lay with the king, elected by God, or with parliament, elected by the people. The king's forces fought those of parliament, and the king lost. Negotiations with the defeated Charles failed, so parliament decided that the only way to get ahead was for the king to lose his. Just before 2 p.m., Charles I steps onto the scaffold. Among the crowd, Samuel Pepys strains to see the king, who's dressed in all black. The king tries to make a speech, but his voice does not carry beyond the parliamentary soldiers that surround the platform. Samuel cannot hear the king's last words. Then Charles kneels. There's a flash of metal as the executioner raises his axe into the air. The crowd, as one, draws its breath. The deed done. The executioner reaches down, then holds up the king's head for the crowd to see, before tossing it into the ranks of soldiers. There's a scrum as men rush to secure souvenirs, soaking their handkerchiefs in blood and ripping chunks of hair from the head. The execution of Charles I will usher in a new era, but this Republic of England won't last long. The question of who rules the country and the quarrels that sparked this civil war will fester for decades until they are finally settled on December 23, 1688, when another king, Charles's son James, loses his crown as well. From Noiser and Airship, I'm Lindsey Graham, and this is History Daily. History is made every day. On this podcast, every day, we tell the true stories of the people and events that shaped our world. Today is December 23rd, the fall of King James II. It's May 23rd, 1660, 28 years before King James II is forced from power. A fleet of English warships lies at anchor off the coast of Holland. From the beach, a rowing boat cuts through the waves, heading for the flagship. On board is 26-year-old James Stuart, the son of Charles I, the beheaded and former king. James himself is not king yet. He is in exile from England, having fled the country with his brothers and sisters after the defeat of his father in the Civil War. But his exile is about to come to an end. The ships offshore have come to carry James and his family home. Eleven years after the execution of his father, Charles I, the English Republic has collapsed. During that time, James and his siblings have lived in exile, scrabbling around Europe, relying on the charity of foreign monarchs to survive. Now they have been invited back to rule England once more. James's older brother, named Charles after their father, 
is to be crowned the new king. James, the second son, is next in line to the throne behind Charles. He will be named Lord Admiral in charge of the English Navy. As they arrive at the flagship, a troop of nobles and dignitaries welcomes James and his new brother, the new king. A day of feasting follows, as the shores of Holland echo to the gunfire salute the English fleet fires off for its new monarch. That afternoon, a brisk wind will carry the fleet away from Holland and take James and his family back to England. A week later, the new king, Charles II, will enter London in triumph. All the church bells will ring, and wine will flow through the fountains of the old city. But just as the execution of Charles I did not settle England's division, the return of his heirs will also not heal the wounds of the past. Six years later, on Tuesday, September 4, 1666, a fire which began in a London bakery has grown out of control, and the whole city is in danger. It's evening in Westminster, and a young Swedish nobleman unwisely ventures out into the streets. The fire is further east, where the sky glows red, but even here he can taste the tang of smoke in the air and sees embers carried by the wind. With a single bodyguard beside him, the nobleman hurries through the streets on his way to see his mistress. But the fire is not the only danger in London tonight. When a group of men overhear the Swedish nobleman talking to his bodyguard, a cry goes up, and soon a mob forms. The nobleman is forced to flee for his life. The members of the mob want to protect the city from foreign spies they are sure must have started the fire. As they string up a rope on a street corner, they are convinced the Swedish nobleman is one of these spies. Soon enough, the nobleman is caught and brought back to the street corner where the rope awaits him. The mob surges and writhes around the nobleman, and before the Swede knows what's happening, the noose bites into his neck. He writhes on the end of the rope, is just about to lose consciousness when there's a sudden shout and a clatter of hoofs down the street. The mob scatters as the incoming riders draw swords. With a swift swing of a blade, the rope is cut, and the Swedish nobleman collapses to the ground. He claws the noose away, gasping for air, then finally looks up at his savior. Red-eyed and covered in ash and soot, James, the king's brother, has been out on the streets for hours, arranging teams of firemen, trying to stop the flames of London from spreading, and now rescuing foreign citizens from a mob. That night, the easterly gale which had spread the fire all over the city will at last die down, and so too will the flames. But the tales of James' heroism will grow. As one witness will write, he has won the hearts of the people with his continual and indefatigable pains day and night in helping to quench the fire. But James's popularity will not last. In the years after the fire, he will convert from Protestantism and become a Catholic, falling prey to the deep suspicion that strung up the Swede, a fear that Catholics are part of some foreign conspiracy. James will try to keep his new beliefs a secret, but the word will get out and the news will spark a constitutional crisis and threaten another civil war. It's July 13, 1683, in a room at the Tower of London, five years before the fall of James II. A servant to the Earl of Essex has come in to check on his master. The Earl should have risen by now. His trial is due to start. The Earl of Essex was arrested three days ago and brought to the Tower of London. 
the dreaded ancient fortress in the heart of the city where those accused of treason are held. The Earl is alleged to have conspired against the life of King Charles II and his brother, James. The assassination plot failed, but it is the latest and most dramatic episode in the hysteria that has taken over the country since rumors began swirling about James's conversion to Catholicism. James's older brother, King Charles II, has no legitimate heirs, meaning James will become king if Charles dies. A Catholic on the throne of England is an intolerable prospect for many, especially in Parliament. There, new laws have been proposed to limit the influence of Catholics in government and even prevent James from becoming king. Such moves have bitterly divided Parliament and the country. In 1673, King Charles tried to quell discontent by arranging the marriage of James's daughter and heir, Mary, to the Dutch Protestant Prince William of Orange. In the years since that match, however, the fear of a new Catholic dynasty in England has not faded. Some, it seems, are now willing to turn to more extreme measures to prevent it. When the Earl of Essex servant steps into his room in the Tower of London to check on his master, the Earl is nowhere to be seen. Baffled, the servant searches the room. The closet door is stuck. The servant pushes hard against it and forces it open, just enough to see the body of his master, the Earl, slumped on the ground, a razor blade in his hand and his throat cut. The death of the Earl of Essex will be deemed a suicide, and it will be seen by many as a shameful act of confession to a horrific crime, a plot against the royal family. These alleged misdeeds will spark a wave of patriotism, strengthening the position of James as heir to the throne. It's November 19, 1688, near Salisbury in the south of England, five years after the death of the Earl of Essex. James II, now the King of England, Scotland, and Ireland, holds a fine lace handkerchief to his bleeding nose. Ever since he left London two days ago, marching at the head of an army 40,000 strong, he's been suffering from repeated nosebleeds. His doctors urge him to rest, but James is in a fight for his crown. Following the death of his brother, Charles II, James became king and was crowned at Westminster in April 1685 but soon after his opponent's fears about his Catholicism were realized. James believes he has been made king by God himself. He has packed his army with Catholics and tried to force the courts to rule that he can ignore acts of parliament. Those who opposed him were promptly removed, including judges and archbishops. And with each passing month, James seems more and more like his father, a king who could not bear any restraint on his power. Many in England were horrified, but most took comfort in the fact that James did not have any sons. His heirs were his daughters, Mary and Anne, and they were Protestant. But in June 1688, James's wife gave birth to a boy, a boy who immediately outranked his sisters in the line of succession and was to be raised a Catholic. Just weeks after the birth of James's son, a group of seven Protestant nobles, among the most powerful and wealthy men in the land, sent word to William of Orange a Dutch prince married to King James's eldest daughter. They formally invited him to invade England and take the throne. So just a week and a half earlier, William of Orange landed in Devon on the south coast of England with 15,000 soldiers. King James II marched west from London to meet him. Now, at Salisbury, the king has an army twice the size of William's. But James is unwell, plagued by nosebleeds that confine him to a sickbed. And with each passing day, his advantage dwindles. 
troops rally to the invading Dutch as more and more men from the king's army defects. James begins to panic. He fears that the enemy is about to attack him in his weakened state, so he orders a retreat to London. It's a disastrous misstep. Whatever authority James had is struck a fatal blow by his loss of nerve. The pace of defections from his army increases. Anti-Catholic riots break out in London. And soon, James will realize that all hope is lost. His reign is collapsing around him. If he is to avoid sharing the same fate of his beheaded father, he will have to flee England and abandon the throne. It's December 23, 1688, about a month and a half since James II, the King of England, Scotland, and Ireland, fled the field of battle. Now, at Rochester, 30 miles east of London, James is heading into exile. The new rulers of the land make no attempt to stop him or kill him. They do not want to make a martyr of James. They just want him to leave. And now he's skulking out of his kingdom and heading for France, a bitter and reduced man. But James will not give up his claim to the throne. With the help of the French, he will raise another army in Ireland and try and take back what he thinks is his. But defeat at the Battle of the Boyne in 1690 will end his hope of ever reclaiming the throne. In London, Parliament will declare that James has abandoned the crown, breaking the oaths he made when he became king. The seat of power left vacant will be offered to James's daughter Mary and her husband, the Dutch Prince William of Orange. They will reign over the country together, Protestant monarchs for a Protestant nation. But they will also only do so with the consent of Parliament. No British king or queen will ever again try to rule absolutely as if ordained by God. And with James II's ignominious abdication and exile, which happened today, December 23, 1688, the question of where ultimate power lies has been answered. Next on History Daily, December 24, 1914, in the trenches of World War I, British and German troops call a truce to celebrate Christmas together. From Noiser and Airship, this is History Daily, hosted, edited, and executive produced by me, Lindsey Graham. Audio editing by Molly Bach. Sound design by Derek Barons. Music by Lindsey Graham. This episode is written and researched by William Simpson. Executive producers are Stephen Walters for Airship and Pascal Hughes for Noiser. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, my name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast.